If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Hamilton today. Jump into the fun. Send us a note. Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. You can talk. You can text 905-645-3221. We would love to hear from you. Diane and Dave in the newsroom. Uh, Tom on the board. Or sorry, Matt on the board. And uh, Erskine booking the guests. Jump into the fun. Love to hear from you. Hammerhead trivia coming up after the 5 o'clock news. All right. Uh, interesting uh, article in the National Post by Lubomir Luchik. Uh, Putin tried to kill Ukraine and failed soon he will reap what he has sown remember this was all supposed to be over within a couple of days when uh russia invaded ukraine man almost a year ago now when you think about it um and obviously that has not gone to plan and it appears that every day that this drags out it just looks worse for putin let's bring in uh, dr lubomir luchik a professor sorry oh i'm sorry yep sorry Sorry, I'm ahead of myself here, kids. Uh, all right, it's 321. Let's change gears here. Uh, and really, seriously, a Tesla Cybertruck did not get the warm welcome that the company was probably hoping for. I'm not sure what the objective is here of um, the Tesla Cybertruck. Um, it, it looks goofy. Uh, many people have said, and it, it's certainly uh, making lots of traction for its ugliness uh, on social media. Uh, and, and you got to kind of wonder where uh, Elon Musk was coming from when he designed this. Let's bring in David Booth, senior writer, Post Media Driving, driving.ca, and is with us now. I'm all right, so um, let's talk about this truck. First of all, um, your thoughts on the truck itself. I mean, is this practical in any way? Does it Does it do what pickup trucks are supposed to do? Uh, it's got some practical, practical features, but really, it's 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 so far out of the mainstream. I suspect that other than the Tesla fanatics, um, few are going to buy it. I can't I can't see somebody. I just saw the um, um, the Ram fifteen hundred EV concept, and it's absolutely stunningly gorgeous. Um, it'll be revealed uh, tomorrow about five o'clock um, Eastern time. And take my word for it, if you like pickup trucks and you're at all interested in in electric versions, you want to take a look at this. It's really awesome. But that all being said, the Tesla is uh, is again to appeal to his fan base. And unfortunately for Elon Musk, his fan base would appear to be shrinking right now. Uh, so is this a novelty for him? And is the novelty of a Tesla truck enough to outweigh its ugliness? I suspect when it was launched, it was not meant as a novelty. Uh, I think he was deadly serious about it. because, And at the time, um, again, the fanboy experience, the almost cultish, slavish devotion to anything Tesla put out, regardless of what it looks like, um, overcame all. And in fact, at the time it, came, it was first revealed two years ago, it was, you know, well-received. But the, the, the bloom is really off the rose. I mean... Part of the story about the reaction that it's getting right now is about the truck itself. But the bigger story is that Tesla is imploding. The shares are down 75%. Um, Even though sales increased, um, they're way below expectations. Um, The people that were normally um, brazen acolytes um, are turning against uh, Tesla's uh, and and Elon Musk. A lot of it has to do 
the, the situation, but it's just as well. There's been, you know, a, a litany of broken promises, including not selling any more shares. Um, that you know, people are doubt is finally starting to creep in into his prognostications. So, will this truck even see the light of day? Will it hit production lines? It'd be kind of hard not to. Um, uh, uh, you know, I, uh, you know, they're so far along the development cycle. Uh, I can't see it not hitting the uh, production lines, and I, I think it'll do sort of reasonably well, at least on the, on the, uh, uh, at the, um, at the beginning, because there'll be a, you know, a certain amount of pent up demand by those again that are still loyal fanboys. But I, 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 just like the Japanese found out when they tried to take on the big three uh, in the pickup range and went away, um, you know, shamed by what they could do, except for Toyota and even them, that, you know, they're not nearly as successful at pickups as they thought they'd be. Um, I think that um, Elon is yet another casualty of, of, of hubris thinking that Detroit doesn't know what it's doing, especially when it comes to pickup trucks. Uh, on that note, David, uh, obviously everybody is now into the EV business. How does the Tesla company and their production of EVs, how does their product stand up to General Motors, Ford, Toyota, the rest of them? Well, um, the the good part of 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 uh, the Teslas are the software and the supercharger. Okay, uh, sta- the supercharger stations. I mean, they they I, I can't overstate how important the reliability and the proliferation of those supercharger stations are to Tesla's strengths because. You know, the infrastructure that the rest of the EVs have to use is just plain horrible. And and I've written many stories on saying it ain't getting any better anytime soon. So that's a distinct advantage. On, on the other hand, their cars are boring, uh, boringly styled. Yeah. Um, they some of the technology isn't all that uh, all that great. I, I, I read one quote saying uh, comparing it to the Porsche Taycan where um, uh, the Taycan was uh, a 2025 car with 2016 software, where a Mm. Tesla is a 2012 car uh, car with 2025 software. So So, are are any of the big three learning from Tesla? Oh, they've, uh, they're, you know, they're picking up on everything that tesla does i mean some of them have changed to the cylindrical battery cells that tesla uses and everything else so uh, technology the one thing they're not picking up on uh, is the infrastructure uh you know they're they're building you know subsidizing stuff they are 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 um they're uh, lending money to their um uh, to their dealers to 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 uh build you know infrastructure and charging stations at their at their uh, at their dealerships but they're not doing what is again tesla's key strength building out their own infrastructure and maybe nobody will ever do that again um uh, you know in retrospect but that part they aren't learning david booth with a senior writer post media driving driving.ca tesla's Cybertruck supposed to hit production lines this year uh it'll be fascinating to see how well it sells david thanks for the time be well thank you very much as well 
It is 3.37. It is 900. C.H. Mellon, Scott Thompson, Hamilton Today. Jump into the fun. Love to hear from you. Send us a note, Scott Thompson, at 900CHML.com. Phone line's always open. You can text. You can talk. 905-645-3221. Don't forget the website, 900CHML.com. All the details there on the podcast and how you can help the C.H.M.L. Children's Fund. 900CHML.com. Love to hear from you. All right. Um, we remember when the Russian invasion of Ukraine happened almost a year ago now uh, many thought including russia that this would be over in a matter of days that people would um, just either put down weapons and run or surrender and obviously that has not been the case uh, fascinating article in the national post today the headline putin tried to kill ukraine and failed soon he will reap what he has sown and to talk more about all of this the author of that column dr lubermeyer luciak is with us professor with the royal military college of canada uh researching um strategic studies and the former soviet union and such and is with us now a uh, doctor thank you so much for the time i hope you're doing well i'm fine scott thank you if you can't win a war in the first week like uh, uh putin was trying to do what other options do you have well i think it's clear that he miscalculated and now he has resorted to wide-scale violence directed against the infrastructure of Ukraine and against the civilian population, uh, a war of terror intended to break down the morale of the Ukrainian nation and therefore force some kind of settlement. But it's not working. I, I was talking to people in cave this morning. If anything, it has firmed up their resolve. They recognize that they are in a war that if they lose, they disappear. So it's a war against Ukrainian Ukrainians. It's a genocidal agenda. So Ukrainians can't afford to lose. They can't afford to negotiate. They can't afford to say, well, we'll give up this territory or that territory. Just give us peace. Uh, and the fact that Ukraine's armed forces have proven so capable in the field uh, also gives them hope and strength. So um, with under the leadership of President Zelensky, who I described as Ukraine's Moses in a way, and that's mm. what he really is, um, I think Ukraine is on its way to victory. Uh, if he hasn't, meaning Putin, if he hasn't won by now, and, and I guess you've already said the answer to this question, will he? What does he have to do that he hasn't done already? <laughs> well, I mean, people talked several weeks ago about maybe he'd use a nuclear weapon. I didn't think it was likely then. I don't think it's likely now. That would be a, a grave mistake. It would probably cost him his life as well. Um, there's not much he can do, frankly. He's he's in a, you know, I, I don't like the, the analogy of he's in a corner because it's sort of people then say, well, then he's going to lash out. No, he's just lost. And now it's a question of his own survival. It's a it's the survival of President Putin and his entourage. They're now doing anything and everything they can to try to buy some time and hopefully to survive this. Um, I don't think they're going to, frankly. I think it's very likely that the Russian Federation will be fragmented as a result of this, uh, that various national groups within the Russian Federation will acquire their own independence or become more autonomous, certainly, that Russia, as we knew it even a year ago, will disappear. It certainly should mm. not be in the Security Council of the United Nations. It needs to remain, of course, in the General Assembly. But there are going to be major geopolitical changes 
And this is something that people like me and others have been saying for years. I mean, not with all the details that we have now, but, you know, this was um, the so-called Russian Federation was a kind of an imperial project. Mr. Putin is not trying to rebuild the Soviet Union, but he's trying to rebuild a kind of a Russian empire, seeing himself as a kind of quasi-Tsar. And it's failed. You know, Humpty Dumpty is not going to be put together again, no matter what the king's horses and men try to do. And, and that's what this is. It's Humpty Dumpty all over again. So This is fascinating. This is fascinating, Lubomir, because this started with Russia reaching out and taking over Ukraine. Now you're saying that you don't think Russia will survive in its current form, and certainly Putin may not survive all of this. So instead of taking Russia, or sorry, taking Ukraine, they're going to lose Russia. Yeah, I think that the Russian Federation, not Russia itself, I mean, there is a, there's a nationality yeah. called Russians, and they have a territory, and it's associated with them, and they'll hold on to that, and they may hold on to other territories that they acquired over the centuries. But the Russian Federation as a multinational, multilingual, multiconfessional state, which is what it is, it occupies one-sixth of the Earth's land surface. It's huge, right? But the the reality of it is it's always been sort of held together, cobbled together by a certain amount of duress and in some cases brute blunt force. I think the failure of Russian arms, the failure of the imperial project that Putin launched in February of this year um, is going to resonate for decades. Russia has now taken itself out of the uh, community of civilized nations, as it were, and has placed itself as a pariah state, a rogue state, if you like, a terrorist state. Well, that's not going to change anytime soon. I mean, you know, look, I, I grew up in a world where people said, what's a Ukrainian? I'm, I'm an old guy now, right? Uh, now, everybody knows what a Ukrainian is. And everybody looks at Russia and says, what was all this for? What is all this devastation and destruction for? Because some guy in the Kremlin, KGB man in the Kremlin, says Ukraine doesn't exist. I mean, how can you say that? It, it, you know, it, you're saying this nation does not exist. These people don't exist. Well, that's genocide. And the fact that Ukrainians refuse to accept death uh, and destruction and have fought back valiantly with, of course, the support of the United States, Canada, the United Kingdom, the European Union, many, many countries around the world are rallied behind Ukraine. Well, you know, that has changed the, the, the whole equation. And I think what we're going to see in, in our lifetimes is um, a very different uh, Europe than we uh, began with, you know, at the start of this century. And How are Russians dealing with this at this point? Well, denial. Um, I'm sorry to say that in part because of a lack of accurate information, because of Russian propaganda, uh, because of the control of the media in the Russian Federation, some Russians certainly don't know what's happening and so follow the Kremlin line. Others know and accept the Kremlin line because they're complicit in the crimes, the crimes against humanity, war crimes of the Russian Federation. And of course, many who uh, do know the truth have fled. I mean, there have been hundreds of thousands of Russians, primarily men, who have actually left the Russian Federation, although the borders, I understand, are being closed down right as we speak. Um, I met some of these Russians in Georgia in the summer and in Poland and in Turkey. And these are young, generally men, um, intelligent, hardworking professionals who want nothing to do with the Putin regime. Now, I have to say, as much as I 
respect in a certain sense their decision to leave and not be complicit in the crimes of the Russian Federation and of the Putin regime. The fact is, in Ukraine, the men stay and fight for their country, and they get their women and children out. In Russia, the, the men left and left their women and children behind. And the ones that are left behind, the men who are left behind, uh, the criminals, the conscripts, um, are those who just didn't have the resources or the means to get out in time. And now they're being, of course, used as cannon fodder against Ukrainians. I mean, um, I don't think Ukrainians want to kill Russians. I don't think that, you know, they all woke up on the 24th of February and said, well, we should start killing Russians today. They're defending their homes, they're defending their families, they're defending their country against uh, soldiers who, by and large, are being pushed forward against them, poorly trained, poorly led, and are dying in droves. 100,000 Russian war dead so far, more than 100,000, I think it's 107,000 as of today. I mean, even if you say, well, that's slightly exaggerated, okay, let's say it's 60,000. 60,000 and then you multiply that by two or three in terms of the number of people who are severely injured or you know disabled as a result of the war you're looking at catastrophic losses of of, of human lives for what you know i mean no hmm. one can explain to me what this is for people say well nato expanded no it didn't Poland joined NATO because it wanted to be part of the European Union, wanted to be part of NATO. The same thing happened with Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania. It wasn't the West coming East. It was the East running West. It's not an expansion. It's a contraction of, hmm. of empire. And, you know, it, it, everybody loves to say NATO expansion because it makes it seem justifiable for Putin to invade a neighboring country. Why invade? I, I wrote, actually, uh, just before February 24, that if Putin was smart. He just stopped. He would have just bullied Ukraine and the West and would have, in a sense, quote unquote, won the war. Instead, mm. he launched his troops and he's lost the war and very probably will lose his life. And Dr. Lubermeyer, Dr. Lubermeyer Luchik with us, Professor Royal Military College of Canada and his latest in the National Post. Putin tried to kill Ukraine and failed. Soon he will reap what he has sown. Thank you so much for your time, Lubermeyer. Much appreciated. Be well. My pleasure, Scott. Thank you for having me. It is 3.52. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson, Hamilton Today. Feel free to jump into the fun. Love to hear from you. Send us a note, Scott Thompson, at 900CHML.com. Phone line's always open. You can talk. You can text 905-645-3221. Diane and Dave in the newsroom. Matt Taylor on the board. Willers can book in the guests. Jump into the fun. Love to hear from you. All right. Uh, a new Nanos poll shows a significant, a significant portion of liberals want Trudeau to step down. But unfortunately, uh, not a lot of conservatives love Pierre Polyevra either. So where do you go from here? Let's bring in Daniel Perry, consultant Summa Strategies, and with us now. Daniel, thanks for the time. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. Uh, what are your thoughts when you, uh, when you uh, look at these polls? Um, you know, there was a recent one just prior around Christmas time that said the majority of Canadians are, uh, are in the center, yet the politicians seem to be fighting over the extremes. Where do you see this year going? Uh, wh- what are your thoughts on where the heads of Canadians are? <laughs> well, it's still very early. We're very much still in that holiday hangover, I would say. Um, I think, honestly, a lot really depends on what happens with the economy. If it goes into the direction uh, of the toilet, I think uh, there's going to be a lot of conversation among Canadians about the economy and how they lost their job and how they're having a hard time. But if things start to pick up and start looking a little bit better, I feel like the Liberals' polling numbers will also pick up a little bit. Is this about the loss of love for Justin Trudeau or that the other candidates are that much better? 
<laughs> uh, judging by what the poll says, I don't think the other candidates are much better. I think it's just the tiredness of having the same leader uh, for almost a decade. We saw this with other leaders as well. After a certain point, people just get tired of you. I'm sure a lot of spouses feel the same way about their partner sometimes. Mm. You just kind of are just exhausted. So I think that's what we're seeing in the poll reflects that. Are conservatives taking full advantage of this? I'm going to say no for taking the poll for what it's worth. It seems like a lot of Canadians don't like the conservative leader at the moment. With that said, I think if we did another poll and looked at how many people actually know who the conservative leader is and can name Pierre Polliver's name off the top of their head, I think there's an opportunity for the conservatives to kind of break through and introduce him as a good alternative to Justin Trudeau. But for the ones that do know him, they don't really like him that much. So that could be a challenge. What does Pierre Polyevra have to do moving forward into the next year? He seems strong with men, but women seem to favor Justin Trudeau. Uh, He needs to soften his image a little bit. He's very, I would say, angry and aggressive. And that's not something that a lot of women look for when they're looking to pass their ballot. He needs to uh, become a little bit more relatable, a little less angry and just constantly complaining and bashing the government. He needs to find some common ground and find some solution to the problems that women are facing. Are the conservatives seeing that? Or, you know, considering, like you said, uh, the the shelf life of this government may be coming to an end. Obviously, people start looking elsewhere. And, and as I mentioned, are they taking advantage of this opportunity? But are the conservatives looking inward and saying, you know what, we should be doing better than what we are here? It seems like a lot of conservatives are just looking in the mirror, being like, we have a, we have a really good product. Let's, why are people believing us? and kind of trying to drum up their own support uh, just by saying the same thing over and over again. I think what the Conservatives have to do is kind of actually listen and be a little bit more receptive to what Canadians are asking for, because most Canadians are on board with the price on carbon. They don't mind paying a little bit extra at the pumps. They will complain and grumble, but at the end of the day, they, they want climate change to be curved a little bit. So I think Conservatives need to find policies that actually connect with Canadians and not just focus on where their supporters are. At the end of the day, it's great to have your supporters with you, but if you want to form government, you have to cast your net a little bit wider. Is Jugmeet Singh making any gains in any of this? Uh, he should be looking at this as a late Christmas present. With such unpopularity in the Liberal leader and the Conservative leader, there should be a position for him to kind of just come up the middle a little bit and kind of gain some support. But with that said, I think he's going to have to go out uh, throughout Canada and get his name out there a little bit more. But if liberals, especially if more progressive liberals, are tired of Justin Trudeau, he has a good chance to uh, pull a Jack Layton and, and make some good moves and maybe even form opposition. Daniel Perry with his consultant, Summa Strategies, on where we are in the new year with politics. Daniel, thanks for the time. Be well. Same to you. Take care. It is 420. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson, Hamilton Today. Matt Taylor on the board. Erskine booking the guests and Diane and Dave in the newsroom. Jump into the conversation. Love to hear from you. Send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Phone lines are always open. You can talk. You can text. You can leave us a last word at 905-645-3221. All right. Uh, today in Barrie, another 
police funeral. Yeah, another one. This has played out uh, far too many times uh, recently uh, in uh, Ontario history. And today, a private funeral held for OPP Constable Greg Perchala, uh, who was uh, gunned down just after Christmas, uh, just outside of uh, Hagersville. Let's bring in Sean O'Shea, reporter for Global News Television. He's been up there. He's with us now. Sean, thanks for the time. Hope you're well in this very um, difficult time again. Uh, we've lost. Have we lost Sean? Oh, we've lost Sean. Um, uh, we'll try to get him back uh, as quickly as possible. Uh, you know, I, I think that's one thing that um, the, the Premier, uh, Doug Ford, when he was speaking at the funeral earlier today, and, and obviously when you're uh, in leadership positions like he or the Prime Minister or what have you, um, you're obviously called on to uh, represent in situations like this. And uh, as the Premier said, this has been happening far too, far too many times. Uh, it seems the... Uh, back in the day, if, if a police officer was shot, my goodness, it was, you know, the world came to an end and or came to a stop rather. And, and everybody took note. Now it seems like these are passing, um, just like the stories of, of murders we're seeing across, uh, North America. Has it become that with constables as well? Uh, as this funeral was held in Barrie today, let's bring in Sean O'Shea, reporter with Global News. He's with us now. Sean, thanks for the time. I hope you're well on this very difficult day. And another one of these. Are you there, Sean? Can you hear me, Sean? Have we lost Sean again? Can you try to get him back again, please? Uh, and make sure you can hear us. Thank you. Uh, again, this has uh, been happening far too, far too many times, uh, it, it seems. And at one time, this was an anomaly that a police officer in Canada uh, would lose their life, you know, in the line of duty through shooting or, or anything like this. Uh, uh, obviously, this officer uh, just answering a call of a car that had gone into a ditch and once again was pretty much ambushed, didn't even have a chance to, to react to any of this, as we saw in past shootings as well. So, uh, again, it's, it's, it, it's, it's a very difficult time, not only for the rank and file, but also for Canadians, for Ontarians who aren't, aren't used to this sort of thing happening. And it, it seems that every couple of months we find ourselves in uh, this position. Um, apparently, Greg enjoyed nature, was a fan of art, excellent at his job, and a new police officer above all. This was his first day on the job as a solo officer. Uh, when you're in training and in probation and such, your probationary period, you're out with a training officer who kind of shows you the ropes for a year or so. Um, and that obviously had, uh, he'd completed his probation and he was out on the street for the first time. Uh, and it's just, it's so sad when you think of what has happened and, you know, of all of the events that police officers are called to, uh, something that seems as, uh, benign as a car going off the road and ends up in, uh, an officer losing his life. Let's try again. Sean O'Shea, reporter with Global News. He's with us now. Sean, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well under this uh, very difficult time that we find ourselves in again. Scott, thanks very much for having me on. I apologize. We're having some cell phone issues up here in Barrie, a lot of people up here. It's, it's, it's been October 20th was the last time we were here, and that was for the funeral in the same place, in the same arena, for those two South Simcoe police officers who were also killed. 
So there was certainly a, a feeling of deja vu from, from that. It's much colder, it's drearier here today, cold winter rain, uh, and that same sort of sense of uh, why did this happen, how could this happen, and now, as you know, the Lieutenant Governor of Ontario, Elizabeth Dowdeswell, said it's happened more times in one year uh, than at any other time. Now four Ontario police officers killed in the line of duty in one year, so that's quite remarkable. Uh, you know, uh, there, there. You've been to a, a, a few of these now. Um, is there? Does this get any easier? Is there any way to describe the loss here and and what this community is feeling? Um, it, it's so similar, Scott, to what we saw before. I mean, these we interviewed family members of other police officers who came who didn't go into the funeral itself, but stood on the street and wanted to uh, give their support to. The, the family which is dealing with what's, what's happened here. We talked to a woman whose husband is an OPP officer. I'm here. We're all one big family, she said, uh, the father of an OPP officer. He said they understand the risks, uh, which they do, but nobody expects that this is going to happen. We heard you know, testimonials and, and uh, several eulogies for the 28-year-old officer, who, as your listeners probably have heard before, this was actually the day that he was uh, had just passed his probation. Yeah. He got word of a successful probation in the morning. He was gunned down in the afternoon. So it's especially, uh, the, the timing is especially tragic. And, uh, yeah, I mean, what, what can you say? That's actually what many of the speakers pointed out. What can you say uh, when another officer dies in the line of duty? Sean, the OPP commissioner has been quite vocal about how upset he is with this, the fact that these people who uh, are allegedly, uh, that allegedly took his life, um, were out on parole and should not have been. Are are we going to see any changes? Is his, are his words going to resonate? Good question. I mean, we were in Cayuga when he made those those statements last week, uh, the day after the, the death and I was at the press conference in Hagersville the night when he flew down by helicopter to speak to the family. I mean, there's you know a degree of political pressure that he's trying to, to bring to bear, but judges make decisions about whether to release people who are on bail, and clearly the person who's one of the two accused who was out on bail, um, you know, was was facing you know lifetime prohibition uh, for possession of firearms. He was out on bail. So there's a political side to this, but, you know, the reality, too, is that judges have the final decision on whether to grant bail, uh, subject to what the Crown and the defense lawyers say. Uh, he was he pointed out as well about the senselessness of this. He said that in, in his comments at the arena today at the memorial service. Will we see any change? Probably not. Sean O'Shea with us, uh, reporter, uh, Global News. You can watch Global Tonight for more on all of this, covering the very sad day in Barrie today as uh, the funeral being held for OPP Constable Greg Perchella. Sean, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you very much, Scott. All the best. It is 437. It is Hamilton today. Matt Taylor on the board. Erskine booking the guest. Diane and Dave in the newsroom watching the world spin. Jump into the conversation. Always looking for your last word at 905-645-3221. You can talk. You can text at that number as well. All right. We've been watching uh, what's been happening in the United States uh, as they the Republicans try to elect a Speaker of the House. They, of course, have taken over the House in the last election uh, and are trying to replace Nancy Pelosi. Unfortunately, the Republicans seem to be, uh, uh, well, infighting, and they can't seem to elect uh, their own 
Speaker for the House. Let's bring in Reggie Cicchini, Washington correspondent for Global News, uh, and he is covering the story. Reggie, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year to you as well. So give us a bit of an update. What are we on the sixth round now? What's happening? So we just wrapped up the sixth round uh, of voting, and it went the same as we have seen for the last five rounds before that. Kevin McCarthy did not have enough support behind him to move beyond 201 votes. Hakeem Jeffries on the Democrat side had 212 votes, and uh, Byron Donald, a kind of freshman congressman from Florida, has 20 votes, uh, and they just, within the last couple of minutes, uh, wrapped up that sixth round uh, and moved to adjourn potentially until eight o'clock tonight. Uh, So at least for the moment, the GOP is into day two of their majority, unable to do any kind of business because there is no speaker. So who are or who is the group that is stalling this? Are these Donald Trump supporters? Are these extreme right wingers? Who is the group that's supporting uh, these people that are that are, I guess, going rogue? Yeah, so look, it's it's 20 members. Uh, Many of them are from the House Freedom Caucus who are kind of anti-establishment, although some Freedom Caucus members are also McCarthy supporters right now. Many of these um, lawmakers are backed or friendly with the former president, but the former president himself has also given his support to Kevin McCarthy. So there's a lot of uh, kind of things at play here with why these 20 members of Congress are acting as a roadblock. The biggest one being this group wants to see change throughout the House of Representatives. They want to see more power given to the lawmakers themselves, taken away from uh, the speaker. Uh, And that's not really happening. There have been a series of significant concessions made by Kevin McCarthy to this point, but this group still wants more. They don't believe that Kevin McCarthy is the person for this job, despite the fact that he says that he's kind of earned this position after the more than decade that he has been uh, in the position that he is in. Uh, But they are not willing to budge. So over the next couple of hours, you know, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of kind of loud talking during this kind of conference huddle that they're doing. But until this group can move behind Kevin McCarthy or he potentially, you know, weakens himself even more by giving more away, uh, this is going to be a logjam that's going to be difficult to break. So I've heard uh, I've heard the line, some people saying that, that he that McCarthy is not Donald Trump enough, but yet Donald Trump has supported him. So how how is how are they squaring this? Well, it's it's difficult. I mean, Donald Trump is playing into this a little bit, but he's also not playing into this. Donald Trump was somebody who did not often play by the rules. And Kevin McCarthy, while being on the Republican side and has been kind of staunchly against the way that Democrats were governing over the last couple of years, he is still uh, unwilling to break when it comes to certain functions of the House that that some lawmakers in his party want him to go away from. Uh, you know, Representative Matt Gates, a controversial member himself, from Florida uh, reportedly went into uh, Kevin McCarthy's office and asked to to open up a subcommittee on uh, defense spending. And McCarthy said no. And these Republican lawmakers are saying, look, we're asking you to do things that are outside of the norm. They may not be kind of cool with the rest of the party. And because Kevin McCarthy is not going along with that, these people are just not standing in their way. So, I mean, Trump put aside, he's almost not even factoring into this right now. This is just a group of hardline members of the Republican Party who are simply calling themselves kind of never Kevins. Uh, And, you know, whether or not they're able to break by being handed more power or more responsibility or kind of more rope within the party, this is something that we are going to have to wait to see because it's unclear what's going to make any of these people vote for Kevin McCarthy. I mean, I've got my sheet here. None of them have voted for him since round one. 
so uh, that being said, he still does have, although he doesn't have enough to, to seal the deal, he certainly has the majority of votes. So is the, who's going to be second? Who's coming up the, the inside here to take the lead? I mean, is there anybody in sight? I mean, look, since yesterday, we had uh, Representative Jim Jordan, uh, and he said that he didn't want the job, but he ended up getting a significant number of votes. We had Representative Andy Biggs. We have had Representative Byron Jordan, uh, Donalds. We have had Lee Zeldin. There have been a number of people whose names have come up as the kind of second person to Kevin McCarthy, but until McCarthy himself either backs down or gives in more. He has already said that he's not walking away. He came into this vote today feeling that he had enough uh, sway to get the votes he needed or at least force members to vote present or absent to try and lower the threshold to give him uh, an ability maybe not to reach 218, maybe to reach 211 or 210 or something lower. That hasn't happened. Do we think a second person is going to come into play? It's possible, but that didn't happen today. So unless it happens tonight... Kevin McCarthy's not going to back down. He still has 201 people voting for him. This really is an unkind of precedented moment in history. This hasn't happened in 100 years. And the other times it happened were in Civil War times. Uh, it seems the Republicans are fighting themselves more than they are the Democrats. Uh, how does this or does this damage the Republican brand? How's everybody? What's the fallout here? How are Americans viewing this? I mean, look, Americans are viewing this kind of at large right now uh, for a couple of different reasons. Number one, if anybody's actually been watching this or paying attention to things online, there are a lot of cameras in the House, and that's typically not allowed. But because there's no speaker, there are no rules. So there's no rule stopping cameras from being in there and recording everything. So America is getting kind of a look inside the belly of the House that they don't often get a chance to see. So America is seeing how this plays out, and it is damaging to Republicans. They won a majority saying that they were going to govern and make you know America a better place, and they were going to go after Democrat policies, but they, they are struggling to undertake a constitutional duty that is required of them, and that is to have a speaker in place. Democrats are saying, look, when we were in power a couple of years ago, Nancy Pelosi made it on round one, and we passed through a series uh, of legislations uh, over our two years there. You're going into day three, and you don't even have committees in place. So there are concerns here that this could set up kind of fights for how Republicans are going to govern over the next two years. So uh, obviously you don't have a crystal ball here, Reggie, but how do you think this is going to end? They're back tonight at 8 o'clock, so what's next? I mean, it's anybody's guess. Kevin McCarthy could, you know, manage to get some Democrats to vote present to give him uh, an in with a lower threshold. Democrats have already said they're not going to bargain, but it's a real possibility. There could be more concessions made to Republicans to say that, you know, here's what I'm going to give you in order to vote present or absent or vote with me. Uh, otherwise, this is going to continue back, you know, again, 100 years ago or more. This went on for months and months and months before the party was able to kind of figure out and coalesce around a speaker. This really is unknown. We don't know what's going to happen until a speaker is chosen. And until a speaker is chosen, business can't go on and Congress can't be sworn in. So this is an unfunctioning section of government. We're on the other side of the House in the Senate. They're fully functioning. And Joe Biden and Mitch McConnell were on the same stage today. So bipartisanship and kind of a collective ability to work together can happen. It's just not happening fully. Reggie Giacchini with us, Washington correspondent for Global News. Make sure you're watching Global for more on all of this tonight. Uh, Reggie, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you.
It is 450. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Hamilton today. Matt Taylor on the board. Willers can book in the guest. Diane and Dave in the newsroom. Jump into the conversation. Love to hear from you. Send us a note. Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. And the phone lines are always open at 905-645-3221. Uh, don't forget, coming up out of the 5 o'clock news, your chance to play Hammerhead Trivia. And always looking for your last word as well. All right, this is uh, a very, very sad story, and, um, you know, what can you say about the loss of life, especially when it involves uh, children? My goodness, we just buried a OPP officer in Barrie a little uh, earlier on this afternoon, and now Ontario's uh, fire marshal has confirmed that uh, a late December fatal blaze in a Hamilton townhouse that has left four dead and two, including two kids, started uh, in a couch on the main floor, and that smoke alarms in the home uh, were not working. To talk more about all of this, Dave Cunliffe is with us, Fire Chief Hamilton Fire Department, and here now. Dave, thanks for the time. I hope you're well on this very tragic day. Thanks, Scott. I appreciate the time. So, you know, obviously we know the news. We're hearing the news on the story about this horrific uh, townhome fire and the results of that. But, Dave, I just thought it was really important for you to come on and talk about something that we've been talking about, it seems, for decades now, and that is uh, the own home smoke alarm and how valuable that is uh, in the house and how important it is that we keep those in working conditions, whether it's when the clocks go back or whatever, making sure batteries are replaced and such. But what are your thoughts, and how can we reinforce this message? Well, I really appreciate the, the opportunity to do this, Scott, because uh, this is, is an ongoing issue that uh, not only are we seeing in Hamilton, but across the province. And I can tell you that our statistics that uh, we've gathered for 2022 is looking like that for every residential structure fire that we have here in the city, 51% do not have working smoke alarms. And that is just outrageous as far as I'm concerned. Um, it just means that folks are not looking after their own uh, personal safety. And when it comes to smoke alarms, it is the law. In the province of Ontario, there is a law that says that every residential um, structure will have working smoke alarms on all floors and uh, specifically outside of sleeping areas. And I guess what we have to think about uh, today is, is that uh, fires burn very differently than they did in the past. And it wasn't too long ago that uh, fire service used to talk about you had uh, uh, multiple minutes uh, to be able to uh, get out of your home once a uh, uh, smoke alarm went off. And, and it's becoming very different. Um, products are made with synthetics. Synthetics burn very hot and very quickly and, and with a lot of smoke. And, you know, when we, t- when we hear yesterday that the uh, fire started on the main floor of this residence and in a couch, I can tell you that the couches today uh, absolutely are made of the synthetic materials and they burn hot and fast and they give off very toxic gases uh, uh, that uh, obviously um, can kill you. And Having a working smoke alarm on all levels, uh, I don't want to uh, surmise, but in this uh, situation, I would expect that if there was a working smoke alarm on that first level or that main level, that smoke alarm would have gone off very early uh, based on the smoke uh, conditions that uh, would have been created by the couch fire. And there would have been early warning for the residents. Um, And once that smoke alarm goes off, as the fire marshal said yesterday, you have minutes uh, to get out. Um, and one of the things that's really important is is that you need to understand and know how to get out of your house. So once that smoke alarm gets out, goes off, knowing how to get out. So have the plan. Uh, have two ways out. 
and know what, what that looks like, whether you're on a, in a single floor uh, ranch style uh, home or you've got a multi-story home, know how to get out and where those exits are. You know, you bring up a very valid point, Dave, because, I mean, those of you in the in EMS and, and all the emergency services, you know how to react when situations like this happen, but the average person doesn't. So when a smoke alarm or it goes off and there's smoke in the house, I can only imagine the panic. So how important is it that you have that plan so when you're in that state of panic and confusion, you can still function? Well, it's extremely important because you don't know when it's going to happen, Scott. It could, it could happen in the middle of the night at 3 or 3 o'clock in the morning. And, you know, here you are uh, sound asleep in bed. You hear your smoke alarm go off. And now it's time to uh, to take action and to get out. And if you're on a second floor, uh, you, you need to understand, okay, how do I get out of, out of this residence? Because as we heard yesterday, the investigators have determined that uh, their exit pathway from the second floor to the, uh, to the outside was blocked by fire. And so if that happens, uh, you need to know, okay, is there a window that's going to get you out to a, another roof level or onto a garage where, uh, you know, you can be rescued by firefighters? Or do you have a, a, one of the, the uh, safety fire safety ladders that uh, you can put out a window and so that you can get out? Or, you know, just knowing in terms of what windows open uh, large enough that you can get out so that... If if you're on the phone with the fire department with the dispatcher, you can say I'm I'm trapped on the second floor. I'm in the back bedroom on this side. I'm going to be at the window, uh, and so that we know how to get you out. In fact, I can tell you it wasn't so long ago that uh, we had a, a, a really difficult fire on Upper Upper uh, Wentworth Street in a townhouse where we had multiple people that were in a bedroom, and they told us where they were, and and just by doing that, firefighters were able to uh, get to them and rescue them. Uh, this is stunning, Dave. You said 51% still didn't have a working smoke alarm. I find that just astounding in 2023 because I'm old enough to remember when smoke detectors came onto the market with technology and everybody thought this was amazing. But it seems that we're just, we, we just don't, we've lost the message. We, we install them, we forget about them. Yeah, I think unfortunately, Scott, I think you're you're very correct on that. I I think people take them for granted. To be honest, um, they're in our homes, and I, I don't think people realize that. First and foremost, uh, you need to change the batteries. Uh, most of the smoke alarms, even those that are hardwired, have uh, battery backups. And you know, within a six month period, uh, you need to make sure that those things are still active and the batteries are still providing the charge they need. And quite frankly, they need to be changed. The other piece is is that if you have a smoke alarm in your house uh, that is activated because of cooking or because of uh, steam from a shower, that battery is getting used. And so it's not going to last that six months. So you need to make sure that you're checking that and and you're changing them out. In fact, I would suggest you want to be doing it on a monthly basis just to make sure it's safe. The other thing is you want to remember that these these devices, uh, smoke alarms and CO alarms, have now a life expectancy of 10 years. And so you want to be mindful of that, that you need to make sure you're checking to see if, if they're still operable. At the end of the day, the bottom line is, is that we, these devices can and will save your life. And people need to st- can't keep taking these for granted. They are, they are a very important device that are in our homes. And the fact of the matter is, is at the time when you're going to need them, you've you got to make sure they're going to work. Dave Cunliffe with us, Fire Chief, Hamilton Fire Department, reminding you not only make sure your smoke alarm is there, but make sure you are testing it and it is functional. Dave, thank you so much for the time. Good luck. Be well. Thanks, Scott. You too.
And also, thank you to the Hamilton Fire Department and all the EMS workers that do such a great job in protecting Hamiltonians and those around the province. We don't say that enough. Thank you so much, Dave. It is 520. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson, Hamilton Today. Matt Taylor, looking for your last word at 905-645-3221. Have the last word when we're out of here at 6 o'clock, just before Radley. All right, we have been seeing a shortage of cold and flu medications um, across the country for months now. And nobody seems to, everybody seems to be talking about it, but nobody seems to be asking why or what we can do to fix it. It started with kids' medication and such uh, coming out of or living with the global pandemic, and now it has spread to adults, uh, adult medications and such, uh, a shortage in this country. Uh, Why is that? Should we be producing more? Are we caught with our pants down again? Let's bring in Justin Bates, CEO of the Ontario Pharmacy Association, or Pharmacists Association, and is with us now. Justin, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Happy New Year, and thanks for having me on tonight. Happy New Year to you as well. You know, we've been talking about this, Justin, for, for quite a long time, and I've been, I've been doing some research on this, and I can't seem to find any other countries that are having quite the difficulty that Canada is. I mean, obviously, there's supply chain issues. We're coming out of a global pandemic and such, or living with it, whatever you want to call it. But it seems Canada is having a really tough time of this. Why is that? It's a combination of factors. Uh, usually what ends up happening is one shortage creates another shortage as we shift products and, and look at mechanisms to mitigate the, the shortage. And in this case, now we're starting to hear shortages in the U.S. where we ironically imported drugs in order to backfill uh, the lack of production here in Canada. But when you look at the underlying reasons, uh, I would say it's it's threefold. The first is that we saw a much earlier respiratory illness and uh, flu season than we would typically see. It actually started in the late summer, and that drove demand about 300% more when compared to the same time in previous years. And there's just not enough domestic production uh, here to be able to be flexible enough when we have uh, that kind of fluctuation in, in demand even though the fact is that uh, you know we have to look at this long term. We have 800 drug shortages uh, when you go to Health Canada website, and uh, many of those are prescription-based amoxicillin, very important medications. 23 of them are essential. So this is a, a big problem. It's not just for pain and um, fever relief and, and cold and flu for children and adults. It, it goes well beyond that. And, and I think the other issue that we have is that we're not creating enough incentives for manufacturers. Um, They're Mm. leaving this country. They're outsourcing um, the production and the sourcing of the active product ingredients. And that introduces vulnerability in our supply chain. Uh, And the third is we we just don't have enough tools. Um, You know, how long did it take Health Canada to import drugs from other jurisdictions took way too long. We've, as you noted, we've been dealing with this for several uh, months and, uh, you know, for a sophisticated country of, uh, of, you know, the gold standard that we expect from our healthcare system, we're certainly uh, falling short on those uh, major issues. Uh, this and what stood out for me was domestic production and and our lack of self sufficiency in this area. What do we need to do to ramp up um, uh, domestic production of this? Uh, obviously, we're not creating enough incentive for these drug companies to come here. Why is that? 
Yeah, I think there's been uh, a decade or more uh, emphasis on price reduction. So that does have a, a cause and effect. And, and we do believe in fair and reasonable pricing, but you want to create the kind of incentives that manufacturers will invest in uh, production and facilities and, and jobs in our own country. We see this beyond pharmaceuticals. If you think about the masks uh, in the very yeah. early days of the pandemic, you know, we didn't have enough and we had to rely on importing from other countries. But that that takes uh, an investment uh, and an acceptance that we're not going to be the lowest cost jurisdiction. I mean, we have some suppliers in certain therapeutic areas, amoxicillin would be a great example, of four or less. So if one of those um, primary suppliers runs into production challenges, and it could be everything from sourcing of the active product ingredient to labor shortages and other uh, factors that that slow down production, then you're at a huge vulnerability because the secondary tertiary suppliers can't just turn a switch and start those production lines and they actually charge a premium to do so. So we need a healthcare policy that's more long-term, making those key investments and essentially protecting ourselves from some of these uh, vulnerabilities. Have we spent too much time in Canada trying to drive the price down by, you know, uh, ignoring the big pharma companies who really put all the money into R&D and instead favoring generic drugs that just wait for the patents to expire or jump on them before so? Well, I think it, it's a... Uh... It's a cyclical environment, and and we need both, right? Uh, the the savings that are generated from generics, which are interchangeable and equal in quality and in, in effectiveness, you're you're hopeful that those savings will then be reinvested into innovative medicines, so that we're still a tier one country for new launches, and that uh, we don't have the kind of vulnerabilities where there's smaller number of suppliers for each of the key areas. I mean, antidepressants would be a perfect example where there is some classes of those drugs where there's only one supplier. And to switch uh, to a different therapeutic area uh, can actually have a huge impact on uh, the patient um, and, and their response to it. So, you know, I do think it's critical. There has been far too much emphasis on getting to the lowest price and comparing us to countries like New Zealand. Um, but certainly there needs to be a balance. We do need good value for money. And, uh, you know, we're having those discussions with the federal government, as well as creating more essential medicines lists that would including cold and flu and uh, children's Tylenol and Advil, that could be stockpiled federally, that in the event of a shortage, we would be able to tap into those reserves uh, and distribute them equitably across all of the provinces. With the results of a global pandemic, are, is more attention being paid to this, do you think? Are we, are we going to fix this? I think we are. Uh, you know, it's taken a while, but... Health Canada was putting in place some pretty significant changes and reforms to what we call the Patent and Medicines Review Board, PMPRB, and, and they've put the pause button on that. And they are engaging and consulting with industry and with other stakeholders to try to get this right. Um, lots of discussions about national pharmacare and what the implications are there in terms of how they pay and, and uh, go about procuring uh, medicines across uh, a very fragmented healthcare system from the federal government to the provinces. But we are starting to have the right conversations. Um, it's never fast enough and uh, hmm. patients and pharmacists are feeling the pinch. I mean, the the survey we have done shows that pharmacists spend about 30% of their time just managing and navigating drug shortages. So, you know, from a workload wow. perspective, that's significant. Holy smokes. Uh, we got to do a lot with healthcare, don't we, Justin? We got to fix a lot of things. 
We do. It's no shortage of, of challenges uh, to maintain our, our public universal system, tapping into all healthcare providers to create a more sustainable system and, and creating capacity and, and access uh, across all parts of the system. It's not easy, and, and it's a fragmented system in this country. Justin Bates with his CEO of the Ontario Pharmacist Association talking about the shortage of drugs in Canada. Justin, thanks for the time. Good luck. Be well. You too. Thank you. It is 537. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Hamilton today. Jump into the conversation. Send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Matt, always looking for your last word at 905-645-3221. You can talk. You can text. Um, I want to bring in John Iveson, journalist with the National Post, and he has penned a brilliant article uh, in uh, today's edition of the Post. Uh, Trudeau's pursuit of wedge politics has cost Canadians their national pride. Think about that. Trudeau's pursuit of wedge politics has cost Canadians their national pride. I first, and, and the reason this is resonating with me, uh, this for, uh, I first realized that the Prime Minister is perhaps one of the most divisive Prime Ministers of my lifetime when 90% of the truckers were vaccinated and instill of, instead of celebrating that or the rest of the population, we were vilifying the 10% that either can or won't get vaccinated. So instead of celebrating, we're dividing. And to me, this has just continued and continued and continued and is echoed in this column. John Iveson, journalist with the National Post, is with us now. John, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Hi there. How are you doing? I'm doing very good. Happy New Year to you, John. Boy, I think you hit the nail on the head uh, with this one. It it seems that... uh, you know, whatever the issue is, uh, whether it's gender, whether it's vaccination or what, or what have you, the prime minister seems to pit people against each other. You're either on this side or that side. Climate change is another example. If you don't agree with his policies, then you're a, a denier. And it's like you may not be a denier. You just don't agree with his policies. What are your thoughts? Uh, how How has this separated the country, do you think? Well, I think... You know, in part, it is it is his nature and has always been the nature of, of the Liberal Party under Justin Trudeau. You know, he came and he was elected promising to be the great unifier. He was going to forge consensus, bridge divides after what he considered the partisan Harper years. And there's no doubt that, you know, I mean, let's face it, Harper was a, uh, a hard partisan and, and tried to use wedge politics as well. But... Trudeau promised to be something different, and I and I don't think he has been. I mean, I do think you know I wrote a book on Trudeau, and one of the the part of the thesis was that uh, there was this uh, the vision of the anointed. It was taken from a, a, a an American thinker called Thomas Sowell, who talked about the anointed who see themselves as being right all the time, and those who are uh, against them are the benighted, and they're not only in error, they're in sin. And this creates this sort of moral certainty in a sense that, you know, the good intentions, so they, they should be excused excused their mistakes. And Trudeau has taken this idea of the, the anointed right the way through his um, seven years in power. And I think he's added to that a, a, a sort of cynicism where when the, the vaccine issue came up, um, this was seen as a potential great wedge issue. And if mm-hmm. you look at the 2021 election, it was all about vaccine mandates. Yeah. And and he created that. I mean, he, he on the first day of the campaign, he stood at Rio Hall and started talking about, um, you know, we're going to uh, 
require public servants to have, to be vaccinated. We're going to require everybody who takes a plane and a train to be vaccinated. Uh, but not every party believes that. And um, and this is a chance for people to have their say on that. And he forced the other parties to take a position that was either his position or in support of people who, you know, the, 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 the anti-vaxxers, which was a very hard position to take in winning a general election. And, and Erno O'Toole tried to do neither. He tried to sit in the fence. And obviously, mm-hmm. we know what the result was. How has this cost us our national pride? You get the feeling the Canadians feel beaten up, beaten up right now. Yeah, well, I was I was reflecting, you know, the way I sort of started ta- talking about it was New Year's Eve messages or New Year's messages, and how um, you know in other places there were there were messages of, of hope resonating and unity and restoring trust in the political process, and I th- I do think that. A lot of Canadians are feeling very weary of this situation right now. That while we not may not be as polarized as the U.S., we are pretty polarized, and that has been the direct result of the political decisions made by our political leaders. And I'm, and I'm not suggesting Justin Trudeau is solely responsible for that, but he is most responsible because he's prime minister, and he created that division in the in the election. And the and the his strategists still see that those kind of tactics as being the way. To winning the next election, we're seeing that at the moment with the gun control bill, hmm. where you know they they clearly overreached with this idea that they were going to you know ban every hunting rifle in the country, and they were reversing themselves slowly. But but there will still be hunting rifles banned, and there's still going to be strict gun control that is going to create a divide between the rural Canada and urban Canada, and the reason for that is because by winning urban candidate, Justin Trudeau can win the next election. Are these, uh, well, you've just answered my question, are these discussions all about winning the next election? This is less about what's good for Canada and more about what we need to do to secure a victory. Are Canadians realizing that? I don't know whether they're realizing it. I think the polls suggest that there is a disillusionment with, with the current government. This may be a realization the, the Sunny Ways message, which which he was elected on, is a, is a you know far in the rearview mirror by now. Uh, you know there is an I think a, a a sense of disillusionment and dissatisfaction with the way the country is going, and a sense of the the, the hopeful narrative that Trudeau was elected on in 2015, maybe even in 2019. Uh, again, is People don't feel very hopeful right now. And you I know, you bring up a... across with the, the conservative leader, and maybe aren't very hopeful about him either. Although he's uh... trying to, I think he's trying to tailor his message a little bit to be to become more hopeful. Because in in his New Year's message, he was he was talking about uh, um, you know some of the a more hopeful narrative than than he's previously been talking. Do you think Pierre Pauly ever realizes that? You know, what has not worked for Justin Trudeau, that the divisiveness has created this anger, has, has fueled the anger, maybe not created it. And, and certainly, you know, as, as your piece is suggesting that, uh, you know, has cost us our pride. Does he see that though and realize that, man, I got to unite? Is, is he doing that? Well, he clearly didn't do that in the, in the leadership campaign. And, and I, I think leadership campaigns 
have a very different audience than general election campaigns. Yeah. Um, the message that he gave at New Year was uh, he wants the country to be a place where people feel like hard work pays off, where they're respected, where leaders don't talk down and point fingers at them, but lift them up. And and so, the, you know, there is this kind of um, sense that he starts talking about opportunities and, and a brighter future. Um, can he succeed doing that? I mean, I don't know. You can't really just disown everything you said in the past. And, and mm. can, you know, Canadians will be reminded of it in an election campaign. A lot of the rhetoric... Where how do you go from sunny? How would you go from sunny ways in the selfie and that uplifting message to where we are now, though? I don't know. I think he's, he's probably been beaten down by reality. I mean, I, I, I vividly remember meeting him in 2015 and saying, "You're never going to get half of this done in relation to his uh, to his party platform at the time." And he said, "You're such a cynic," and I thought, at the time, you know, you're, you're going to be. You're going to get a rude awakening if you ever get a chance to try and implement this this agenda, and, and you know it proved to be the case that if we remember how many broken promises and how few, how, how little of his original agenda he managed to, to get past. I, you know, I suspect that it's taken its toll on 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 him and and on the his sense of uh, of optimism. Um, you know, I think it's very hard to, to keep talking about hope and change and prosperity and all this stuff when when you've been in charge for the last seven years and, and you know in, in many cases things haven't haven't changed for the better john iveson with us journalist with the national post the latest uh trudeau's pursuit of wedge politics has cost canadians their national pride john thanks for the time be well thanks Scott. bye-bye it is 551. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. News coming up at the top of the hour. After that, the Scott Radley Show is uh, going to air after the 6 o'clock news. And, of course, Scott, you can read in the Hamilton Spectator. He is with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am doing damp. It's wet out there. Man, it's pouring <laughs> out there. It is a really miserable day. There's it is, no choice about it. It is not. A, yeah. You know what? I'm expecting the flowers to start blooming, though. It's, uh, it's very spring-like. Yeah. I actually saw some pictures of people uh, taking shots of little things coming out of the ground on social media last weekend. So, man, you never know. I, I was thinking confused. as the I squirrels was, are confused. Well, everyone is. And as I was driving down to the studio, though, I was thinking, thank goodness, because do you know how much snow there would be if it was cold right now? Yeah, exactly. There'd be tons. Absolutely. You, you don't have to shovel I, I rain. hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. All right. Here's uh, to me what is wrong with Canada. This, uh, you know, and this is going to make me sound like an extreme right winger, which, of course, I'm not. I'm in the center. I have voted for all three political parties. Thank you very much. But we got this uh, news release today. Rallies planned across the country to call on the Trudeau government to drop the F-35 deal. And it says actions are being planned across the country this weekend to call on the Trudeau government to cancel its procurement of 16 Lockheed Martin F-35 uh, strike fighter jets for $7 billion. It ends with the coalition wants the federal government to invest in affordable housing, health care, climate action, and social programs that will help Canadians and not F-35s that will enrich the American weapons manufacturer. Oh, my God, Scott. We've been asking for these planes for decades, for decades. Uh, tell this to the people of Ukraine. Well, uh, are we, okay, are, are we not 
whether we are or whether it's just talk, are we not already talking about spending tens of maybe hundreds of billions of dollars on the things that have just been asked about? I'm not talking about the planes, Absolutely. the housing and the Absolutely. environment Absolutely. and everything else. And that's, it, that's all we hear about, honestly, for the last little while is all the money that's going to these things. And so whether or not that money is ever spent, who knows, because there's lots of projects that get promised and then never get delivered. But I mean, in the grand scheme of things, this is, it's a lot of money. There's no question, but it's, it's not like all the money that Canada has or is ever going to borrow and go into debt with is going into military apparatus. No, we we blew twenty eight billion on the CERB, sending it to people who really didn't need it. So what's seven billion in the hey, grand scheme? You of know things? what? There's a you just raised a really good idea. What they should do is force all the people <laughs> who wrongly and I'm not talking mistakenly who you know they said there were a lot of people who knowingly took yeah, CERB and yeah. others that shouldn't have got it. With interest, they could pay back the amount to pay for these planes. Just go after them and say, that's, that's, and Scott, my question is this, how do you, and we talked about this on my show a couple weeks ago, how does the government know if I am like $12 off in my income tax and they decide they're going to send me a thing to ask for receipts? Surely every single person who was wrongly given money could be identified in the span of about six seconds with their computer system. Uh, you know what? We've been we've had this discussion with business profs on uh, the show, and this should have been done through the employment insurance uh, uh, system, and then that way it would have been easily tracked. But instead, they set up a separate system to do this. Yeah. But it could have easily already been done through the taxation system, and I think that's what a lot of Canadians thought was going to happen. Well, and and I I do have sympathy for those people who sure because of of confusion or because of wrong information they received on the fly, took CERB or took some money and they weren't entitled to it and spent it and now are looking at this going, geez, what am I going to do? I, I have great sympathy for those people because I don't yep. really blame those people. If you re- if you asked, if you inquired and you got bad information, you should, honestly, you should get a pass. But it's the people that they've pointed to who said they knew they weren't supposed to get this. And they took it. I have zero sympathy for them. I have less than zero sympathy for them. In fact, those people who took money knowing they were not entitled to it, what happens if you take money from someone that is not yours and you spend it? Generally, not only do you have to repay it, but there are other problems that follow you. It doesn't seem like we want to go after anyone, really. Not That doesn't sound like it. It sounds like we want to just sort of wave our hand and say, oh, well, you know, we had to get money out the door fast and uh, too bad, so sad. No, if I took money from my company, that if, they, if my company put an extra $5,000 on my paycheck by accident and I spent it knowing that I did not have that $5,000 and didn't ask anybody about it and then said, oh, you can't have that back. It's not, we don't live in a finder's keeper's world with this. So uh, you could pay for these planes just by going after some of the people who apparently wrongly took, knowingly wrongly took the money. You know, this reminds me, uh, in the late 80s, early 90s, I came back from Calgary. I was lucky enough to be there during the Olympics, and Toronto was trying for a summer Olympic yep. bid, and Jack Layton, leader of the NDP at the time, started Bread with not, uh, Bread Not Circuses and did all this demonstration that really countered the bid that, that Toronto was trying to make. And he used the same excuse, this should be spent on health care, housing, or whatever. And he was successful in getting the bid uh, cancelled, but... <laughs> 
didn't help a, a hill of beans to any of those other causes whatsoever. It amazes me that people think if you don't buy this, then it's all going to go to that. Let me make another suggestion. How about if it doesn't go to planes, that it goes into repaying or whittling away a little bit at our unbelievable debt that is becoming a problem because of interest rates going up and what we're going to leave our kids and our grandkids? How about we do that? Good point. Scott Riley will continue the discussion coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You can also read them in your Hamilton Spectator. As always, Scott, thanks so much. Have a good show. Thanks, Scott. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. Uh, do we have a last word? Okay, we don't have the last word, so I'm going to have the last word. Uh, have yourself a great night. We'll chat tomorrow. Love you. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com.